Welcome to episode 51 of Seekers and Scholars, a podcast from the Mary Baker Eddy Library in Boston and online at mbelibrary.org. I'm Jonathan Eder, your host. In our discussion today, we are going to be exploring a critical event in the history of Mary Baker Eddy and how it reflected a critical juncture in the history of American journalism. Our focus is on a meeting that took place between Mary Baker Eddy and Arthur Brisbane, one of the most celebrated figures in American journalism history. We're going to look at why that interview happened, what it meant for Mary Baker Eddy, who Brisbane was, and what the interview meant for him, and what the circumstances around that interview reveal about the state of journalism in a time when the United States was just entering the 20th century and embracing a new modern age. So, I'm so pleased to have with me today for this conversation, Arthur S. Brisbane, grandson of the subject of our episode today. Art has had a distinguished career in journalism in his own right. Among newspapers where he has worked are the New York Times, where he was public editor, the Kansas City Star, where he held the various positions of publisher, editor, columnist, and reporter, and at the Washington Post, where he was an editor and reporter. It's great to have you with us, Art. Great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It's really a great honor. And I'm, I'm glad you have the same, virtually the same name as your grandfather. Otherwise, I might not have found you. <laughs> <laughs> when I looked him up, you popped up as well. So it was wonderful to make that connection. Well, also with us is Nathan Buchanan. Nathan has worked as a researcher for the Mary Baker Eddy Library, and he wrote a piece on Brisbane's interview with Mary Baker Eddy for the libraries from the collection series, which you can find on the library's website. So hello, Nathan. Hello. Great to be here with both of you. <laughs> it's great to have you, Nathan. So Nathan, I'd love to start with you. Can you explain to us why this interview takes place in the first place. Why is it that Arthur Brisbane, this eminent journalist, comes up from New York City, from one of the, the nation's biggest newspapers, to interview Mary Baker Eddy in her home at Pleasant View, outside of Concord, New Hampshire, with her lawyer present in the room, General Frank Streeter? Why does this take place? The main reason is this trial that happens in 1907. It's called the Next Friend Suit. It's started by Joseph Pulitzer, who's one of the most prominent newspaper owners in the United States. At the same time, Eddie, who has gained prominence, is often featured in various headlines. So Pulitzer really seems to want to attack her and her beliefs, and he prints a very sensational story about her in 1906. So the case itself is designed to have Eddie's next friends gain control of her fortune. The charges brought argue that Eddie is ill and is unable to manage her affairs. And it also says the members of her staff are taking advantage of her for their own financial benefit. So the next friends will include members of her family, and they really want to get involved. They want to make sure their inheritance is okay. So the trial will begin in March of 1907. While that's happening, the press will continue to print wild claims about her 
in the lawsuit, which really focused on her health, her mental ability, and what's happening in her household. So Eddie and her counsel decide to have what Eddie biographer Jillian Gill calls a brilliant series of public relations moves. So Brisbane comes in because Eddie wants to fight these narratives by doing her own press interviews to demonstrate that she is well and controlling her affairs. These interviews, including one with the court, will prove that Eddie is alive and has a very keen intellect. And they demonstrate that she manages her staff and her personal business. And then later on, the case is dismissed, September 30th, 1907, and Eddie is victorious. Oh, that's great, Nathan. Thanks so much for that summary of the case, which we know is very complicated. Um, And behind those family members who were named in the case were other individuals whose motives were far more threatening to Mary Baker Eddy. Their, Their intention was ultimately to bring her down and with that, to deal a a death blow to her life work, to her ideas and the religion she founded. So Art, thinking about those ingredients that go into this story, the powerful figures involved, the celebrity figure, the sensational trial, the intense scrutiny on it, how does that story reflect what was going on in journalism in the United States at that time? Well, I kind of see this in a slightly personalized way, I think, just because my grandfather was a major part of of that period and of the events that we're concerned with here today about Mary Baker Eddy and the Pulitzer articles. So the story of Arthur, my grandfather, is a kind of an ideal illustration of how the press developed in the 1880s, 1890s, and then into the decade that we're talking about. And uh, there are many things that can be said about it, but I'll start with one that seems pertinent, and that is that at a time when newspapers dominated the public sphere for lack of any other media and for, for lack of very many other forms of entertainment, newspapers really grabbed hold of the public mind and never let go. And it was a big business. And so the major papers vied with each other intensively for the largest possible audience. And Joseph Pulitzer was certainly one of the most successful in doing this. And Pulitzer, in in many ways, and I'll come around to my grandfather, Arthur, in a moment, but Pulitzer, in many ways, set the template for how newspapers would develop in America. Uh, When he came to New York and he bought the New York World in 1883, because what he was able to do was to build up a modest-sized newspaper into a giant. Uh, We're talking about a newspaper that, by the late 1890s, circulated over a million copies So Pulitzer was a genius at developing a large audience, and he did it in ways that were pioneering. He built his audience substantially from the new immigrant population that was amassing itself in New York City. Uh, Immigrants from Europe, Russia, who were disenfranchised largely. And Pulitzer took their cause as his own. 
And he modeled his newspaper in such a way that it was accessible to a mass audience. He didn't talk down to his audience. He adopted their causes. He made crusades and campaigns around their causes and did so in amazingly inventive ways. And you could go on and on about the things he did. But the creation of the Sunday newspaper, illustrations, comics, sports coverage, a lot of things that we take for granted, which are on the wane today, of course, in newspapers, but which became staples of newspapers, were the product of Joseph Pulitzer's mind. But one thing that happened that was very important that led to how it came to be that Pulitzer and Arthur Brisbane were on opposite sides of the Mary Baker Eddy question in 1907. And the big thing that happened that led to that was that in 1895, William Randolph Hearst came into New York City and bought the New York Journal. And from that point forward, through the balance of Pulitzer's life, the New York Journal of Hearst and the New York World of Pulitzer were at each other's throats, opponents in politics, opponents in every possible way, and competitors for audience. So I'll back up for a second. My grandfather, Arthur, actually worked for both of these men. He started in the 1880s working for a third giant who's less well-remembered today, Charles Dana, who was the owner and operator of the New York Sun, which was at that time the leading New York newspaper by most people's assessment. Anyway, my grandfather worked for him. He was a cub reporter. He was then able to go to London as the London correspondent for the New York Sun, covered the political fights on the continent, uh, covered British politics, was particularly active in covering prize fighting, which was the leading sport of the era. He covered Jack the Ripper, uh, went into the Whitechapel areas of London to hunt down the facts of this horrific killing spree. And he made a huge name for himself in doing this. One of his qualities, one of his personal qualities, was that even though he was about 22 when he found himself uh, observing and talking with Bismarck and interacting with the Prince of Wales, he had no sense of shame <laughs> or self-consciousness. He made the assumption that he was up to it. And they all seemed to respond to him as a young man who was up to it. So he quickly broke into pretty high ranks. And when he came back from London, 1889, uh, Dana made him the managing editor of his evening paper, where he stayed for a while. But he shortly went to work for Joseph Pulitzer. And we're talking about 1890, 1891. And Pulitzer was still very active. It was prior to the point in time when his health became so debilitating that he had to really separate himself largely from the day-to-day. But Arthur was his personal secretary for periods of time, was a writer for Pulitzer, and in 1896 took over as the editor of Pulitzer's Sunday edition, which was at that time a huge circulation builder, so a major focus for Pulitzer. And Pulitzer, by this time, and Hearst were in dire combat over Sunday circulation. So what emerged next uh, really set the template for how it would be for the balance of Pulitzer's life, and that was the Spanish-American War in 1898. And that war triggered a circulation battle which became, quite frankly, infamous in journalism history because it triggered the uh, expression yellow journalism, which many people associate 
with the huge headlines and sometimes overdramatic, sometimes not entirely accurate claims of one paper and another. And they were outdoing each other, outspending each other, outshouting each other to degrees that had not previously been seen in American journalism. And the response within the journalism world itself was very intense. So the other papers in New York, and New York had a dozen or more dailies, they were horrified and worried because they were getting their butts kicked uh, in covering a war that was of great importance. So, of course, they became vocal critics of Pulitzer and Hearst, with Hearst now having Brisbane in his employ. And Arthur was uh, very adept at the large headline attention-grabbing techniques. So you had a kind of a vortex of hostility within the press. Pulitzer versus Hearst, the other papers criticizing both of them. I think the sense that I have from reading accounts was that pretty much everybody involved was at least mildly ashamed of how far (laughs) they had gone in sensationalizing the coverage. So that is a big part of the step up to conflict between Pulitzer and Hearst. So coming up to 1906, and Joseph Pulitzer, as Nathan was telling us, decides to publish this article about Mary Baker Eddy and her disabilities and incompetency. It's simply natural that Hearst would look at this and Arthur would look at this and say, probably not true, um, and would make a terrific opportunity to take the other side. Arthur, through this whole period, has been, since basically 1897, when he went to work for Hearst, Hearst's right-hand guy. He was Hearst's right-hand guy for editorial writing, for editing the papers. So, for Hearst to see an opportunity, and Arthur to see an opportunity, to take a shot at Pulitzer via Mary Baker Eddy was a complete natural. In reading the article that that Arthur did write, the interview that he conducted with with Mrs. Eddy, the hallmarks of his style are all in evidence. Mm -hmm. Arthur was a proponent of clear writing. His goal from the get-go was reach as many readers as possible. Don't write down to them. Don't confuse them with multisyllabic words like multisyllabic. Speak in plain English. Make your point. Offer a variation on your point. Now come back to your point. Never be afraid to repeat your message. And one of the things he did in the article, which again was, I think, characteristic, was he provided good description. He brought the reader into the room with Mrs. Eddy. He described her clothing. He described her home. He described her face. He offered subjective judgments about her, that she was intelligent. She was clear-minded. And all of this is very consistent with his approach, and I can't help but feel that he must have been thrilled to offer a point of view that was in direct contradiction to Joseph Pulitzer, his former employer, (laughs) and archenemy of his current employer. And I think that perhaps because of his writing style and his, uh, the scope of his audience, this interview became such a uh, celebrated event 
I happen to have acquired over time, you know, multiple copies of the published book versions of this of this interview. Th- this was widely widely distributed. Art, that's fascinating what you say about uh, your grandfather's writing style. It comes across right away as you in- engage with his article on Mary Baker Eddy, the way he brings you right into the room and you feel that you're there and uh, sort of participating. It's a kind of intimacy that he is able to profile, but in a very clear and and measured way at the same time. Nathan, I'm just curious if there's some examples from the article that you'd like to share that sort of stand out to you that exemplify the effectiveness of how he portrays Mary Baker Eddy. Absolutely. If I may, going off what Art says, looking at Brisbane's interview, it's not sensational. It's almost like a conversation, like you're there with Brisbane and Eddie. So when I read the article, I found it in one of our scrapbooks in our collection. Mm -hmm. Uh, Eddie and her staff collected 33 of them. And when you see the pages, it doesn't even look like a newspaper. It looks like a couple of pages from a nice storybook. I love the way Brisbane kind of introduces the story. And I think this speaks well of his style. So Brisbane's referring to Mary Baker Eddy here. The first duty of a writer who sees a personality interesting to the world is to tell what he has seen rather than what he thinks. For what one man has seen, another would see. Whereas one does not think what another thinks. So using that idea, he just tells how he saw Eddie. This is a great moment where he describes her face being full of power and prestige. Other moments he tests Eddie's intellect and describes the results. For instance, he has her read a passage from one of her Christian Science periodicals and describes how she reads it like an orator, like she's in church preaching. What I think is really telling is when Brisbane asks Eddie the reason for the suit, her response. If I could read it to you, I think it's, I think it's great. So Brisbane asks Eddie why she thinks a trial was started. Brisbane quotes Eddie, Greed of gold, young man. They are not interested in me. I am sorry to say, but in my money and in the desire to control that. They say they want to help me. They never tried to help me when I was working hard years ago and when help would have been so welcomed. Then she continues, young man, I made my money with my pen, just as you do. I have a right to it. And then Brisbane writes, Mrs. Eddy not only has a right to it, but she has the mind to control it. I think it's a good example of how he was able to convince the public that Eddy had her faculties, wasn't being controlled. To your point, Nathan, I think he very expertly has these moments that show she's very much a relatable person. For me, one of those examples came when um, he's reporting on a detail in the trial, which was about this uh, trust that she had established for her estate. 
So he writes, quote, she gave clearly and earnestly her reasons for executing a recent trust by which she has voluntarily given over to three of her most trusted friends the management so far as is possible of her material affairs. She explained the character of each of these men. Henry M. Baker, her cousin and a lawyer, Archibald McClellan, the editor of the Christian Science Journal, and one of her most trusted assistants, Josiah E. Fernald of the National State Capital Bank in Concord. In praising her cousin, a former congressman and at present a member of the legislature, Mrs. Eddy laughingly described him as a very good man and as honest as any lawyer can be. She laughed more like a young girl than a woman of 86 as she said this, looking quizzically at her thoroughly trusted lawyer, General Streeter. Um, I thought that was a, a kind of sweet moment where she just sort of took down the the pressure of the room and helped establish a spirit of congeniality. So, Art, uh, with this article in mind and through your exploration of your grandfather's life and work, what would you say was his greatest talent? Well, I, I think he was extremely skilled as a communicator. I, I think that's what mm -hmm. we would say using today's language, that he mm -hmm. knew how you could shape a sentence, how you could compose a sentence for maximum impact, and then you could make a paragraph and you maybe could be done. If you really wanted to communicate an idea, it takes less, not more. And But it takes a sharp mind, and he had that. Jonathan, one of the things that enabled him to make his mark was when he was more or less done being a reporter, he spent a lot of time as an editorial writer. And he, I think, as much as anyone, perhaps more, modernized the way one writes persuasive articles in a newspaper. And that mm -hmm. is to avoid the purple prose, avoid the highfalutin tone, to get down to the meat of the matter and speak to the audience one-to-one -one in clear language. And that revolutionized the way newspapers operated, and it made uh, a big impact. I think on readers, but I also think his peers recognized that he was doing something that others weren't doing, and he was celebrated for that. Nathan, what do you know about how Arthur Brisbane and Mary Baker Eddy thought about or felt about the interview and their interaction after the fact in later years? On June 8th, 1907, Eddy wrote to Brisbane about the interview. She said that it was an quote, unusual pleasure that I have allowed myself. She orders several copies of the book edition that's printed of the, of the article. And even for her movement, that book is very valued at a great explanation of how she was in 1907. They really admire the words Brisbane wrote. Now, Brisbane also came away astonished at who he had interviewed. In a couple of articles where Brisbane is mentioned, he talks about how strong of a mind Eddie has and praises her. He says it was a privilege to interview her. Apparently, they have such a great respect for each other that Brisbane becomes a pallbearer at her funeral, the only non-Christian scientist there to do that. I would like to add one other thing, and that is that Arthur was raised to have a very strong feeling about the role and importance of women in our society mm -hmm. and, a, and a very strong sense of 
the many ways in which women were marginalized. He was born in the 1860s. Women were marginalized. And in his career, he took opportunities to try to elevate the status of women. My guess, and here I'm really only guessing, is that he saw in Mary Baker Eddy someone who uh, embodied the potential of a woman in, in our society. And that made it a tremendous opportunity for him as a writer inculcated to that belief to put that in front of an audience. Mm. And I think he used his communication skills to do that in such a way that we're talking about this, this interview here in 2021. Yeah. That's that's a long shelf life for an interview. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> it still makes for wonderful reading. So thanks so much, Art. It's been great to be with you, and thanks for <laughs> honoring your grandfather in the way that you, you have in this episode, in this interview, and, and in your life. Well, it's been a great experience for me. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I appreciate it. It's my, our pleasure, very much so. And thanks so much, Nathan, for the work you did in researching this article and giving us some of the, the facts behind it and, and your impressions of what you've learned about Arthur Brisbane and his meeting with Mary Baker Eddy. Yeah, thank you. And it's been such a great experience to work at the library and explore Eddie's life. And thank you all for listening to this episode of Seekers and Scholars on Mastering the Press, Arthur Brisbane's famed interview with Mary Baker Eddy. We look forward to being with you for future episodes. Upcoming is one celebrating the 50th anniversary of the groundbreaking TV show All in the Family with a specific look at the work of Jean Stapleton, who was lead actress in it, portraying the part of Edith Bunker. As part of the episode, we'll consider the importance of Christian science to Jean Stapleton in her life overall, in her career as an actress, and in the social causes she supported. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you for listening to Seekers and Scholars. This podcast was produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2021.